0: Last time we spoke about how General Xu Yue managed to trap the Japanese 11th Army of General Anami in what is now called Xu Yue's Heavenly Furnace. That being the massive trap that occurred at the Third Battle of Shangsha. We also talked about the Battling Bastards of Bataan and how they formed the Abuke-Maobin defensive line to fight the forces of General Homa to the last man. Then we talked about the massive blunder that was the Battle of Slim River, which saw the tank forces under Major Shimada smash the unprepared defenders. Last, we spoke a little about the Battle of British held Borneo and how the Japanese were now beginning to occupy the Dutch East Indies. Today, we're going to continue with the Malaya and Philippine stories and enter a new stage for the Dutch East Indies. This episode is the attack on the Dutch East Indies. Welcome back everyone to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host Craig Watson. But before we can even begin, I want to remind you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and many other historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Check out, maybe the episodes on the Opium Wars I did, and let me know that you came from here in the comments. It will mean a lot to me. After an entire month of fighting, and with both the Philippines and Malaya against the ropes, the time had finally come for the Japanese to advance on the Dutch East Indies. This was to be the final link in their planned defensive chain across the Pacific, yet strong allied resistance still remained in the Philippines and Malaya. In the previous episode, we mentioned how the fighting for Bataan began with some probing attacks on the eastern end of the Abike Line. The probing soon escalated into heavy combat, and the Filipino troops showed remarkable valor, trying to repulse the Japanese attacks. From January the 5th onwards, MacArthur put his troops in Bataan on half rations, though in practice they received actually much less, subsisting only on about 1,000 to 1,500 calories per day. By comparison, MacArthur and his men, ensconced on the island of Corregidor, had much more adequate food supplies. On Corregidor, they had enough to sustain about 7,000 men for over six months within the Malinta Tunnels on the island. Life in the tunnels on Corregidor may have been safer, but they were by no means pleasant. On January the 9th, one Pick Diller noted, Suddenly the lights went out. The tunnel wall began to shake. Japs were dropping thousand-pounders. Air inside the tunnel was pressing against our lungs. More bombs dropped. Detonation reverberated louder in the tunnels than outside. Nurses started mumbling prayers. Afterwards, Diller and some other officers started to talk about when the convoys would arrive. One Ramulo quietly told the soldiers around that he had inside information. Stating, The convoy is very near. It may be here in a week's time, but keep that under your hat. This was all because MacArthur had been making false promises about relief efforts being on the way. Despite the fact Rainbow Plan 5 was in effect taking priority for Germany first, and thus the Philippines could expect basically no help. And despite that, on January the 15th, MacArthur said to his troops, quote, Help is on the way from the United States. Thousands of troops and hundreds of planes are being dispatched. No further retreat is possible. We have more troops in Bataan than the Japanese have thrown against us. Our supplies are ample. A determined defense will defeat the enemy's attack. I call upon every soldier in Bataan to fight in his assigned position, resisting every attack. This is the only road to salvation. If we fight, we will win. If we retreat, we will be destroyed. End of quote. It seems that... President Cousin was unaware of the situation as when the realization finally dawned on him that the Philippines was to be abandoned, the furious president and his cabinet demanded instant independence from the United States' suzerainty and looked to declare neutrality. Even MacArthur gave some support to Cousin's demands, which were sent to Washington, and were immediately rejected. Cazin dismayed, was approached by his vice-president, Sergio Osmina, who was pointing out to him that if they returned to Manila, Quezon's daughter might be raped by Japanese soldiers. Quezon replied, Compadre, perhaps you are right. I shall think it over. Quezon would not raise the matter of neutrality again. Around the same time, MacArthur got out an old double-barreled Remington Derringer pistol from his belongings and strapped it to himself, stating to his naval advisor, Colonel Sidney Huff, Sid, they will never take me alive. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast series, I have poked quite a bit at, you know, the decisions of Douglas MacArthur in a poor light, so to say. But I want to make a note here. When he stated what he did when he put this gun on his hip, he definitely meant it. For all the drama and bravaro, MacArthur was genuinely a brave man and displayed fearlessness and astounded those around him throughout his life. You might have heard the infamous song, Dug Out Doug, which was based on Douglas MacArthur during the Battle of Bataan. The idea behind the song was that forces defending Bataan recalled only a single occasion when Douglas MacArthur visited the Bataan front lines to check on the troops, thus earning himself the name Dugout Doug" because he spent his entire time hiding inside the Malinta tunnels on Corregidor while his troops faced certain death. Yet, many historians point out it was not actually Douglas MacArthur having a lack of physical courage because he frequently would expose himself to the enemy bombings on Corregidor, to the point of recklessness. The real reason the troops made this song may have been because of Douglas MacArthur's inability to lie to his troops to their face. As I had mentioned, his false promises about relief forces being on the way never really fooled any of the U.S. forces. MacArthur knew neither the forces nor the logistics were ever possible to successfully rescue Bataan, but he could not bring himself to face his doomed men and lie to their faces while they looked at him. So, General Nara's overaged and underarmed troops, the 65th Summer Brigade, who were intended to garrison the Philippines, were now replacing the crack elite 48th Division, which left for the Dutch East Indies. At War College, Nara had always warned his pupils never to attack without accurate maps. Here, he had a road map and several large-scale maps, but he did not have a plan of attack. His instructions from the 14th Army had merely been to, quote, Pursue the enemy in column down the highway. End of quote. He was given the assistance of two artillery regiments and the 9th and 16th Divisions. Narrow was told there were no more than 25,000 disorganized enemy troops in Bataan, and they would most likely retreat to the little town of Marivelles on the tip end of the peninsula at the first rattle of gunfire. They were just making a brief stand before they would all simply try to escape to the island of Corregidor. All the same. Nara asked to do a preliminary survey, but this was rejected, and he was ordered to attack immediately. So Nara hastily drew up a plan and took one day to organize it. He instructed his 141st Infantry under Colonel Takeo Umai to attack straight down the coastal highway, while the 9th, commanded by his old, trusted friend, Colonel Susumu Takechi, would head down the peninsula towards the slopes of Mount Natib. Nera told Takechi he was going to cross this supposed impassable mountain and cut back to the coastal highway, thus encircling the enemy. After an hour-long artillery barrage, Imai and the 141st started down the highway while Takechi and the 9th marched straight into the immense jungle. Imai's forces had scarcely gone a hundred yards before the road ahead of them erupted in a series of thunderous roars. General Parker's 41st and 51st Divisions as well as the elite 57th Philippine Scouts began to rain absolute hell upon the invaders with their own artillery. Not only were the Americans not going to cut and run, the Filipinos weren't either. For almost 48 hours the defenders artillery cut Imai's regiment to a third. Nara had to replace them with remnants of his reserve units and his troubles were just about to begin. Not a single word had come from Takechi, and he should have already crossed Mount Netib and circled behind the enemy by now. It seemed like the jungle simply swallowed him up. Nara did not report this back to Homa, nor did he record it in his war diary or brigade report. He wanted to cover for his old-time friend, it seemed. Nara's bold plan was falling apart, and thus he turned his efforts to rebuilding his lines. By January the 13th, he shuttled Imai's battered forces to the west to fill in a hole vacated because of Takachi, and then he sent more probing attacks to look for weaknesses along the Abouquet line. On that very same day, Quezon had sent a radiogram to Roosevelt through MacArthur, complaining that the president had failed to keep his pledge to send aid to the Philippines. He urged FDR to direct the full force of the United States' strength against the Japanese at once. His indignation was accompanied in a note he wrote to MacArthur, stating, Has it already been decided in Washington that the Philippine Front is of no importance as far as the final result of the war is concerned, and that therefore, No help can be expected here in the immediate future, or at least before the power of the resistance is exhausted. If so, I want to know, because I have my own responsibility to my countrymen. I want to decide in my own mind whether there is justification for allowing all these men to be killed, when for the final outcome of the war the shedding of their blood may be wholly unnecessary. It seems that Washington does not fully realize our situation, nor the feelings which the apparent neglect of our safety and welfare have engendered in the hearts of the people here. End of quote. MacArthur would follow this up with the previous quote I gave from January the 15th, where he promised the U.S. was sending aid, an empty promise. Most of the U.S. forces in Bataan... Didn't believe him either. The Filipinos alone found inspiration from MacArthur's promises, which made them more determined to prove themselves. On the morning of January the 16th, the 51st Philippine Division launched a counterattack, and they were so eager that one regiment far outran the other units on its flanks. This, unfortunately, was the opportunity Colonel M.I. had been looking for. He struck at the eastern end of the defender's bulge that the Filipinos had made, and at the same time, Colonel Takechi's lost regiment burst out of the jungle slopes directly on the other side of that bulge. Assaulted from both sides, the Filipinos were absolutely wrecked, and by noon, they had collapsed. There was now a two-mile hole in the Abakei line. Later that afternoon, Takechi, with a face lined with fatigue and hunger, his uniform in tatters reported to Nara how his force had been hopelessly lost trying to climb past Mount Natib. Nara ordered him to go into the reserves, clearly trying to help his friend out by giving him and his forces much needed rest. Takeichi saluted and without pause took his force without any supplies or rest, not going north to the reserves but back south again. He had assumed Nara was punishing his men for getting lost and led his men right back into the jungle, they would get over Mount Natib or die trying. On the other side of Mount Natib towards the South China Sea, the terrain was so inaccessible that Homa had been unable to mount any real offensive. Yet late afternoon on January the 16th, 5,000 Japanese under Major General Naoki Kimura, opposite of Wainwright's defensive positions, had discovered that the U.S. defensive lines extended only halfway up the western slope of Mount Silagangan. This was a peak of two miles west of Mount Natib. Kimura decided to do what Takechi failed to do, but on the western side, he sent Colonel Hiroshi Nakanishi with 700 infantry to secretly circle around Wainwright's right flank and then turn sharply west. If all went according to plan, they would reach the South China Sea, cutting off Wainwright's frontline troops by January the 21st. By January the 16th, the 122nd Regiment moved south towards Morong where its advance was stopped by the 26th Cavalry Regiment, consisting mostly of Philippine scouts. Lt. Edwin P. Ramsey had jumped at the opportunity to join the 26th Cavalry Regiment in the Philippines in 1941, recalling later, I didn't know where it was except it was a warm country. It was tropical, and they had a good polo team there. Well, Lieutenant Edwin P. Ramsey ordered the last cavalry charge in American history at the village of Morong on January the 16th. Despite being heavily outnumbered by infantry supported by tanks, the cavalry charge surprised the Japanese, who broke and fled. Ramsey and his men held on to that position for five hours under heavy fire, until reinforcements could be brought up. Ramsey was awarded the Silver Star and a Purple Heart for his actions. Despite the success of the horse-mounted charge, General Wainwright had no choice but to withdraw the forces on January the 17th. He said of this moment, quote, Due to lack of food, they would end up butchering their mounts to survive and convert it into two squadrons, one motorized rifle squadron and a mechanized squadron. End of quote. Back at the Abakei line, MacArthur sent the Philippine Division and his last reserves to try and plug up the gap that was created by the 51st Division's blunder. If this position fell, then his entire main battle position might disintegrate in the blink of an eye. Well, you're going to have to wait until next week for some more stories about the battling bastards of Bataan. For now we're going to shift over to Malaya where the forces of Archibald Paris got completely smashed by Yamashita's tanks who performed blitzkrieg-like attacks to take bridge after bridge after bridge. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Harrison, a British artillery commander who narrowly escaped the tanks, remarked in his unpublished history of the 11th Division, that he could not conceal his admiration for the men who almost killed him and Mustafa Goulam, stating, quote, Heedless of danger and of their isolation, they had shattered the division. They had captured the slim bridge by their reckless and gallant determination. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, when writing to an official historian after the war, said this of the battle, quote, I am rightly criticized for the location of brigade headquarters and for not using the field artillery in an anti-tank role. It is no excuse, but I have never taken part in an exercise embodying a coordinated anti-tank defense or this type of attack. The use of tanks on the road at night was a complete surprise. End of quote. The loss at Slim River was not just a loss of men, but also of equipment. What particularly hurt was losing the 25-pounder artillery pieces. Now, 48 hours before the Japanese had even reached the Slim River Road Bridge, Percival had already decided to abandon central Malaya. This left the extensive road networks in the heavily populated west coast states of Selangor, Nigli, Sembilan, and Malacca, to the use of Yamashita, who could use them to outflank the defenders now. Percival had decided to fall back some 140 miles, abandoning Kuala Lumpur, Port Swettenham, and Malacca, all jewels in the crown of British Malaya. Now a new defensive line would need to be made in northern Johor. The new defensive line in the northern Johor area would be reinforced by an incoming brigade of the 18th Division East Anglin Territorials, who were about a week's sailing time away this new coast-to-coast defensive line was to be around 100 miles in length and 120 miles from Singapore's northern shores. From the west coast, it would begin where the Mar River emptied into the Indian Ocean and proceeded eastwards through Sangamat to the Australian defended territory around Mersing on the South China Sea. Over on the east coast was the 8th Australian Division commanded by General Bennett, who, to put mildly, was disappointed by the plan. It seemed for him, yet again, the mustard-keen Australians were left gazing out at the South China Sea, waiting for a landing that might very well never come, while other exhausted divisions continued to bear the brunt of the Japanese attacks along the west coast. Why were the forces not swapped around, he wondered, but Percival was adamant. Organizing the transfer of thousands of men from one coast to another would not only be a strain on the defenders' transport system, but might also make them vulnerable to some lucky Japanese probing attacks. As Percival stated, quote, We could not afford to leave the East Coast weakly defended even for a day. End of quote. Well, the losses at Slim River changed all of this, and so did the newly arrived Wavell to the scene. Wavell, as we mentioned in the last episode, was the new supreme commander who was just passing by in Singapore before moving on to Batavia. Wavell agreed with Percival's decision to pull back to Johor, but insisted, as Bennett put it, that the Australians were, quote, Going into bat. We must take certain risks on the east coast temporarily in order to organize a good defense on the western side, which is immediately threatened. End of quote. Wawel, as supreme commander, admired the Australian troops. They had served him well against the Axis forces in North Africa, and also against the Vichy French in Lebanon and Syria. In the British military, as a rule, senior officers did not interfere with the tactical decisions of their subordinates. They had a saying, and it is as follows, "Sacum or bacum." And that was the general rule, but on this occasion, Wavell decided to overrule Percival. Thus Bennett's forces were going to move west to the coast of Johor with one of his two brigades and his divisional HQ, which will now be called West Force. The front lines of the area they would be defending held the town of Mar, on the coast, Gemas five miles north, and Bakri, to the east of Mar. Bennett's other brigade would eventually join him as soon as it could be relieved by troops from Singapore's garrison. Bennett would also have under his command the fresh but half-trained 45th Indian Brigade under Brigadier-General Horatio Duncan, and two brigades of General Barstow's 9th Indian Division. The task of West Force was to stop the Japanese advance on Johor long enough to give the Indian forces on the retreat enough time to rest and replenish themselves. The West Force dug in on the south bank of the Mar River, which was a good water-obstacle position, having a forty-mile stretch without a single bridge. Wavell did not think they could hold the position for very long, it would most likely soon turn into a long retreat to Johor, with a strong rearguard performing scorched earth tactics. This all by the way bewildered and revolted the countless local Asian inhabitants who were literally being abandoned in the wreckages. Their paternalistic rulers smashed everything they could not take with them, they broke windows, Tin mines were flooded that the locals had been working in since they were young men, drowning the very livelihoods of entire communities. Percival remarked himself, quote, Pillows of smoke and flame rose into the sky as rubber factories, mine machinery, petrol, and oil stocks were denied. Small wonder that British prestige sank to the very low ebb among the population. Amongst the scorch Earth tactics were also booby traps. Water tanks and laboratories were rigged to explode. Two of Kuala Lumpur's airfields were mined, with some trip wires also attached to RAF bombs. That last one caused some significant casualties to the Endo air group who ran right into them. Waffle predicted that Kuala Lumpur was unlikely to be held beyond January the 11th, and he was correct by a matter of hours. The last bridges to the city were blown up at 4.30 am, and the complete withdrawal was done by the time the sun came up. As was the usual in the Malayan campaign, Yamashita's engineers worked fast, and the first Japanese vehicles were on the streets of the capital of the Malay states by 8.30 pm. The vacuum between British withdrawals and the Japanese arrivals was met with murder, rape, and looting for the locals. As the Japanese took Kuala Lumpur, the Indian forces were withdrawing through West Force, and Wavell was preparing to leave Singapore for Batavia. The Japanese 5th Army was en route going south along the west coast coming up to Gamas, which held the Gaminsa Bridge spanning over a stream. Gamas was located just due north of Mar, and around 4.20pm on January the 14th, Company commander Captain Jack Duffy, hiding in some brush, whispered into his field telephone as Japanese cyclists were going over the Gaminsa River Bridge, seven miles northwest of the town of Gamas. His whisper was the command to blow it up. Duffy was astonished by what happened next, quoting... Japanese bodies, bicycles, timber, rocks, and earth flew far and wide in huge red flash, leaving a gaping space where the bridge had been. End of quote. The explosion signaled the ambush of Bennett's 8th Australian Division. Duffy had allowed 250 Japanese to get over the bridge to be dealt with further down the road, and 400 within the ambush area. The killing ground was high-banked, and the Australians were waiting with Brens-Thompsons, rifles, and a ton of grenades. Unfortunately for the Japanese cyclists, most of their rifles were tied to the crossbars of their bicycles, which went flying everywhere in the explosion. In the war diary of Kawamura's 9th Infantry Brigade, he placed the casualties of the Mukade Detachment, the unfortunate vanguard who were on that bridge, to be at 70 dead and 57 wounded. The action took all but 20 minutes. The unblooded Australians had certainly satisfied their need for blood, and only took a single casualty upon themselves. The battalion in charge of the ambush was led by Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Black Jack Galligan. Galligan was the most senior battalion commander in the entire 8th Division, a tall man held in awe by his men who called him Black Jack. He was given the name Black Jack for his dark hair, brown eyes, and darker complexion, a result of his West Indian blood. He was a stern fighter, with a natural air of authority around him. Some officers claimed to have feared him more than the Japanese. He had been a 22-year-old sergeant in World War I, where he was twice wounded. He told his men... Quote, the reputation not only of the Australian infantry force in Malaya but of Australia is in the hands of this very unit End of quote. Galligan's battalion was deployed as a buffer slightly west of Gamas on the trunk road. His orders were to hold back the Japanese for at least twenty four hours and then fall back behind Gamas River. Six hours after the ambush, the Gemasa Bridge was repaired to the point that tanks could now cross it. The next morning at 9am, Japanese tanks supported by infantry approached Galligan's main position on the main road and the railway. The Australians were equipped with two-pounder anti-tank guns, some of the best of its type of weapon in the world. Lane Sergeant Kenneth Harrison, who was commanding one of these two pounders, said of the initial action, These bursts on contact, and the flash enabled me to see where we were hitting, and to adjust the sights accordingly. With both guns pounding away at it, the second tank did not return our fire for not too long, try as we might. We could not set it on fire, however. Eventually, our infantry sent a message, Tank destroyed, save ammunition. It was difficult to tell how badly it was damaged because of the smoke and flame from the other one. End of quote. The Japanese had poured oil on one of their burning tanks to create a smoke screen to cover the tanks coming in from the anti-tank guns. Another two-pounder rained two shells toppling a Japanese infantry carrier, on its side Harrison commented quote, it lay there with men crawling out like wood bugs from a burning log Harrison then told his men with the two pounders to switch from the high explosive to armor-piercing rounds and to fire them at the burnt-out tank it was not too long until the Japanese infantry began to find their locations and Harrison's own loader was hit in the head by shrapnel the two-pounders continued to rain hell, trying to spot the tank's muzzle flashes as targets as they fired from positions concealed in the thick trees. By the time the Japanese tanks stopped firing, the two-pounders had no idea because their ears were ringing from their own fire at that point. Then the Australian infantry to their right began cheering and waving their rifles. Harrison said of this moment, quote, we waved back rather lamely, but that was without a doubt the proudest moment either of us will ever know. At least four Japanese tanks were totally destroyed, several more were non runners and were towed off by Japanese infantry. Galligan followed up all of this success with a company sized counterattack. Eventually, they were halted by Japanese machine gun fire from the light tanks operating a bit further back. It had been 24 hours, and the Japanese lost 1,000 casualties after Duffy had blown up the Gamasub Bridge. Galligan decided it was time to get out, and this was not easy as the Japanese were pressing hard against all of his companies, and he did not want to risk a rout. They withdrew successfully over to the Sangamat area, which was just due southeast. The Australians had done well, and they knew it. So did the Japanese who had come to the area expecting another slim river situation. Tzuichi wrote that the Australians were, quote, They fought with bravery we had not previously seen before. End of quote. In two days of fighting, the Australians had inflicted far more casualties on the Japanese than they had sustained themselves. Galligan's total losses were... 17 killed and 55 wounded, with 9 missing. While they had been fighting, on January the 13th, the long-awaited reinforcements had docked in Singapore, the 53rd Infantry Brigade of the 18th Division. This held two battalions of Norfolks, 5th and 6th, and one of the Cambridgeshires, alongside 51 crates of hurricanes that were expected to be the first step towards ending Japanese air superiority there was now a general feeling that the tide was indeed turning. On Singapore radio, one speaker described the Australians' efforts as Our seawall against the vicious flood. Now over in Mar, just south of Gemas, was Horatio Duncan and his half-trained 45th Brigade, who would soon be facing off against Nishimura's Kanoi Imperial Guards Division. These were Emperor Hirohiro's personal troops, kind of like the ceremonials. Its officers were desperate to prove that they were not chocolate box soldiers, but rather the best Japan had to offer. Basically, the men of this division were selected based according to their physique. They tended to be taller, and were equipped with the best their country possessed. They held air superiority and tanks. To say it was going to be an uneven fight is quite an understatement. Duncan's brigade held three infantry battalions, Rajputana rifles, Jats, and Royal Garwal rifles. They were supported by a battery of the 8th Australian 25-pounders under the command of one Major William Julius, a stocky regular soldier from Darwin, nicknamed the Black Bastard. They were deployed so that the Rajputs held the White River Mouth, where a ferry was nine miles south of the town of Mar. The Jats held a thinly stretched 15-mile winding river bank towards the east. The Australian Battery held an observation post near the Jat and Garwal's position, and they were in reserve, ready to hit either direction. It took Nishimura no more than 24 hours to get the destruction of the 45th Indian Brigade well underway. First, he fainted towards Mar, encircling two isolated Rajput companies north of the river, forcing them to flee for their very lives. Soon, the Imperial Guards were coming across the river using a variety of crafts. Many of them were taken down by Australians using machine gun fire but some managed to land near the Jat's position. The fighting was very intense, and most of the Australian gunners and Rajputs were forced to fall back towards the Brigade's HQ near Bakri, which was just five miles east of Mar, where Duncan began organizing the Garwals' reserves to recapture the town of Mar, which had been occupied. By nightfall of January the 16th, Mar and its harbor had fallen into Japanese hands. Lieutenant Colonel John Williams was leading one of the JAT battalions, consisting mainly of teenage JATs, as part of the Mar River deployment, as they made their way towards Bakery. His force's position had been in the remote part upstream, and the Japanese had bypassed them as a result. They would be caught, and Williams was beheaded by a Japanese officer using a katana. Duncan had at this point lost three of his battalion commanders in just under 24 hours. When Bennett heard the reports, he sent Duncan some reinforcements, around 160 men led by Lieutenant Colonel James Robertson. Bennett was under the impression that no more than 200 Japanese had gotten into the town of Mar, but there was actually 10 times that number. Robertson's battalion arrived at Bakri during the afternoon of January the 17th, and at 6.45 a.m. shortly after dawn, nine T-95 tanks commanded by Captain Shigeo Gotanda, inspired by the large success of the Shimada attack at Slim River, intended to pull the very same maneuver here at Bakri, and to do it without any infantry support. Six tanks approached in a single file, and the defenders fired upon them using their two-pounders with armor-piercing rounds. The rounds went right through one side of a T-95 and out the other, easily penetrating the 12mm of armor. All six tanks were immobilized, with the closest getting only 40 yards away from the defenders' roadblocks position. The three tanks in the back had waited a bit longer to allow Japanese infantry to catch up but the infantry were too late to the scene as those tanks were also rained down upon by two pounders. The Gotenda Tank Company, which received a unit citation, had all been wiped out. Many tank crews attempted to escape from their crippled machines, only to be cut down by the waiting Australian infantry. Others turned their guns as long as they could upon the defenders. Yamash just stated that this was a, quote, glorious death. More Australian reinforcements arrived at Bakri. a battalion of the 19th led by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Anderson. It seemed the Australians' success beginning at Gamas had given everybody a morale boost, and the generals were determined to stop another panicked retreat. Indeed, a withdrawal complex had been common talk amongst all the men, and it was the opinion of many that the British withdrawals in the north had been brought about by gigantic bluffs committed by a relatively small Japanese force. Chief Inspector of Mines made one comment on this, quote, If a handful of Japanese were reported in our rear, the whole British army must pre-force retire, infantry guns and armored cars often without firing a single shot. A lot of these views were the result of not being able to see the big picture and the very real chances of being encircled and cut off by the enemy. Yet now bolstered by Bennett's Australian force's confidence, it was decided that they would try and contain the enemy at the Mar Bakri front. Since Mars capture, the 45th Brigade was forced to retreat down the coast as far as Parrot Jawa. Percival was informed that the latest intelligence reports indicated the Japanese presence in the Mar area was not small, but consisted of almost the entire Imperial Guards Division. Even worse, some of them had landed further down the coast, and were now preparing to cut the mar Battery Line from the south. Percival knew the chances of holding up this division for any length of time were quite remote. Percival needed a sufficient delay of the Japanese to allow Bennett to bring down south two Australian and six depleted Indian battalions that he had in the Gamas area. To hold the door open to them, Percival dispatched Lieutenant Colonel Anderson's 19th. Now, we had mentioned that the 53rd Brigade of the 18th Division's Anglian Territorials were sailing to Singapore. Well, they arrived during all of this. It had been thought that they would move to the mainland for the purposes of training in jungle warfare, and to have a few days in which to settle down ashore, because they had been at sea for over three months straight. Now comes a point that has often been argued by historians to be one of Percival's largest blunders. Units of the 18th Division required time to recuperate after the long sea voyage, but Percival sent them straight into the fray, almost immediately. Percival sent the 2nd Cambridgeshires to strengthen coastal defences around Batu Pahat. Then he sent the Norfolks to replace Anderson's Australians. One of Anderson's officers who stayed behind to help the Norfolks said of them quote, They were a fine body of men, but almost dazed by the position in which they found themselves. The Norfolks believed they would be in Johor for several weeks, if not months. Your first job is to get the officer's mess going. Was what the Norfolk's CO was overheard telling his second-in-command, while the Australians tried to keep a straight face. They had no idea that they had showed up to the immediate combat zone. At Bakri, low-level air attacks began to rain in as Duncan was holding his 11 a.m. conference in a white bungalow that was his HQ. Almost all of Duncan's staff, including his entire signal section, were killed or wounded by the aerial attacks. Only Duncan and his brigade major escaped unscathed, though covered in everyone else's blood. Dismembered bodies were scattered over a wide area, and part of somebody's stomach was apparently hanging from a nearby tree. Lieutenant Ben Heckney saw this, stating, quote, "Just beside the road, a naked waist with two twisted legs lay about two yards from a scarred, bleeding head with a neck, half of a chest, and one arm." End of quote. Major Julius aka Black Bastard, was among the seriously hurt, and in an attempt to evacuate him, the vehicles he was being moved in was hit by an aerial bomb. Gunner Russell Brandon said of this, quote, The Black Bastard was dead. Our best soldier had not survived, and we were now surrounded. The Imperial Guards were attacking the road to Bakri from the south as well as the east. Mar was taken by the Imperial Guards Division, Gemmas was taken by the Japanese 5th Division, and the remnants of the 45th were now retreating down the coast. The 53rd Brigade's 5th and 6th Norfolks and the 2nd Cambridgeshires, despite being unfit for immediate deployment, were sent to halt the Japanese onslaught. Everything would converge on Bakri, where almost all of Duncan's staff was killed by aerial attacks. Things were not looking good in Malaya. Yet now we are going to have to shift to the situation for the Dutch East Indies. The year of 1942 did not start out well for the Dutch. Their homeland was defeated, and now occupied by Nazi Germany. Their government and queen were in exile desperately trying to help the Allies in any manner that they could. And now their very important and lucrative colonies in the Pacific were the primary target of the Japanese Empire. Some poker hands are just really, really, really bad. Now what the Dutch did have in their poker hand was Lieutenant General Hein de Poten on the land who could count on around 85,000 soldiers, mostly concentrated on the island of Java. On the sea, there was Lieutenant Admiral Konrad Helfrich, with a sizable naval force of five cruisers, eight destroyers, 12 submarines, and 56 other auxiliary ships. Helfrich got the nickname Ship-A-Day Helfrich because in the early weeks of the war, he sank more Japanese ships than the entire British or American navies put together. Helfrich's submarine force in particular was a formidable adversary for the Japanese Navy, continuously sinking their ships and causing a lot of mayhem. There was also the Dutch Air Force, which held around 500 aircraft at their disposal, dispersed amongst the various hidden airfields scattered about the East Indies. Now going all the way back to the overarching Japanese war plan, the invasion of the Dutch East Indies required they first needed to secure footholds on Malaya and the Philippines. Once these objectives were neutralized, the Japanese could begin launching operations against Borneo. Borneo would furthermore become a stepping stone from which to launch a further invasion of the East Indies. The man who would carry out the invasion of the East Indies was commander of the 16th Army, Lieutenant General Imamura Hitoshi. He was going to be supported by the 3rd Air Force once they had neutralized Malaya. The 3rd Fleet of Admiral Takahashi and its 11th Air Fleet were also going to support the Dutch East Indies campaign, since they had finished neutralizing the Philippines. The plan of attack was quite complex, and involved many simultaneous actions. First Davao and Jolo would have to be taken. Then the Sakaguchi Detachment would take Tarakan Island, which we talked about in the previous episode. After Tarakan Island was taken, then the Sakaguchi Detachment launched an invasion of Balik followed up by... Banjarmasin and Bali. In the meantime, Hong Kong would have fallen, and two battalions of the 38th Division would leave Hong Kong to assemble in the Palu Islands to launch an invasion of Ambon, then an invasion of Kupang in Timor. The rest of the 38th Division, the 2nd Division, and the 48th Division who were taken from the Philippines would then invade the island of Java. On top of all of that, The 3rd Fleet's Sasebo Force, i.e. the Japanese marines and the Yokosuka Force of paratroopers would be responsible for capturing Manado, Kendari, Makassar, and Salebs, while assisting operations in Timor as well. All of this relied on the rapid advance of forces in Malaya, the Philippines, and British held Borneo. Yeah, it was quite a complex plan, and so very typical of the Japanese. Who love to make everything extravagantly complex and dynamic in their operations. Now, in the previous episode, we actually covered a bit about the invasion of Tarakan. The invasion force departed from Malalag Bay heading towards Tarakan Island in Dutch held Borneo. They were escorted by a fleet consisting of nine destroyers and a light cruiser under the command of Rear Admiral Nishimura Shoji. The Dutch on Tarakan had a garrison of just around 1,400 men. Led by Lieutenant Colonel Simon Duval, this force had prepared defensive positions, expecting a Japanese attack to the west, and they were in for a surprise, for on January the 10th, Dutch reconnaissance detected the Japanese convoy en route to Tarakan, so Duval ordered the destruction of all oil installations on the island. He also sent some Glen Martin bombers to try and disrupt the landings, but it was to no avail. Japanese Zero fighters tore them to pieces and their Brewster Buffalo escorts were unable to do anything. By the early hours of January the 11th, after the official declaration of war on the Netherlands, some Japanese marines and the Sakaguchi's main force had already landed north of the Amal River. They then marched south to the mouth of the river under a burning red sky, where they stormed and outflanked some Dutch pillboxes. That morning, a battalion of the Sakaguchi detachment also landed further south at Tanjong Batu to capture the Linkas oil fields. This unit tried to advance through the jungle, but it was slowed down by an extremely dense vegetation. Sakaguchi lost communications with them, so the Japanese general had no idea of their whereabouts. During one of the first engagements, a group of 30 soldiers from the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army were bayoneted for refusing to give directions to the main town. As the Japanese advanced north of the Tarakan oil fields, the Dutch bombarded them with artillery and motors. The Dutch and Japanese made several simultaneous offensives against another, but eventually the Japanese landed a series of night raids managing to capture both lines of the Dutch barracks. The defenders had lost many men, and their communications with the coastal batteries were breaking down. This left their commander, Simon Duwal, with no choice but to capitulate by the morning of January the 12th. Yet without communications, some Dutch units were still fighting on. Sakaguchi sent out a warning message to the navy stating, quote, "Although the enemy has offered to surrender, it is feared that the battery at the south end of the island is not aware of this, and it would be dangerous to proceed to the Tarakan pier." Therefore, hold up on your sailing. End of quote. Well, one of these units was the Korengang Battery, which came into contact with the Japanese battalion that had lost communications around noon. Despite the sustained attack, the Korengang Battery managed to shoot and sink two Japanese minesweepers and one landing craft. The battery was finally captured on January the 13th and subjugated to japanese vengeance for the loss of their minesweepers on january the 18th in an act of revenge 215 dutch prisoners from tarakan were drowned at sea where the invaders had lost their two minesweepers sakaguchi had lost only seven men in the entire battle while the ign had lost 250 men mainly as a result of the destroyed minesweepers in contrast the dutch lost 300 men with the rest ending up being captured. On the same day that the Sakaguchi detachment was landing on Tarakan, Rear Admiral Takagi Takio began the operation against Celebes. The invasion fleet commanded by Rear Admiral Tanaka Rezo had three cruisers, 11 destroyers, 3,200 marines, and 762 paratroopers of the Yusaka force prepared to drop on Languan airfield. The main force of Marines would land around Manado to envelop the Dutch defenders and capture the town, while other Marines landed at Kima to help secure the Languan airfield with the paratroopers. Commanding the Dutch forces in Celebes was Colonel Marinus Vorhen. Vorhen had 1,500 men placed in Manado, led by Major Ben Schirmola. On January the 11th, after the Marines had landed at Manado and Kuma. A small force of Dutch units headed to help defend the Langouin airfield, but they were quickly repulsed. Within hours, the Langouin airfield was completely captured by dual assaults of paratroopers and the marines. And as a result, the Dutch forces there had to retreat to Tinor, but would be encircled and crushed by Japanese marines around noon. Manadou fell. And also now, Schumoller had to take most of his forces and retreat westwards to try and commence guerrilla warfare operations. The commander of Company A, Lieutenant Radima, who was stationed in the East Celebes at adjur had a real tough time trying to flee west, often running into Type 95 tanks along the roads. At one point, he was moving with 12 troops allocated to his company for a warehouse when some of his soldiers began to desert along the way. When he arrived to the warehouse, which was acting as sort of a military shelter, it had already been looted by the local population. Thus, he was forced to infiltrate Adjur to gather what forces he could find, but the rest of these troops would eventually abandon him during the journey going west. The high rate of desertion was a result of the fact the Japanese had taken hold of all the major cities and towns. And therefore, all the soldiers' families, the women and the children, they were also in the Japanese clutches. All of this was done in a 24-hour time frame. No one had time to gather their families, as you can imagine. The Japanese soldiers then began to drop pamphlets that read, quote, The war is not against any of you. It's only against the Dutch. So be sensible. Don't interfere, and go home. End of quote. From that point on, the Japanese performed mop-up operations, but many of Shimoda's scattered Dutch units managed to escape their clutches. The Japanese had lost 44 dead with 250 wounded. The Dutch had around 140 killed with 48 captured. As was becoming ever more typical of the Japanese, in retaliation for the casualties that they had received, the paratroopers executed Dutch prisoners of war who had defended the Languin airfield. They beheaded and bayoneted them, and at least two Mandanese soldiers were tortured to death. The Dutch guerrillas who had escaped broke into five different groups, trying to carry on the fight. Some of them would fight on until August, believe it or not. On March the 12th, Shimola, who led one of these guerrilla groups, sent one of his officers to Manado to discuss the terms of surrender with the Japanese. He hoped that he would be able to negotiate that his troops would be allowed to carry weapons and to protect their families that were traveling with them to Manado. The Japanese, of course, refused this and told them to come to Manado unarmed. So periodically, all five of the groups would be captured, and many of them would be furthermore executed. The last groups of guerrillas were eventually captured in August, as I had mentioned. Their commanding officers, Lt. Johan de Jong and Lt. William van Dalen, were taken prisoner on August the 9th. They were tortured, interrogated, and beheaded on August the 25th. Along with them, 15 of their soldiers were also beheaded. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And after all that, if you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Next week, we are going to get right back into the action with the battles at the Abukay defensive line in the Philippines. Next week, we're going to get right back into the action in the Philippines to continue the story of the Battling Bastards of Bataan we are trying desperately to hold the Abakeh Maubin defensive line. Alongside that, we are not yet done with the town of Mar in Malaya. Percival is going to try and retake it, and I bet you can imagine how well that's going to go. Lastly, we're going to start a brand new story with the invasions of New Britain and Balikpapan. So join us next time for the Invasion of New Britain.